Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, the podcast for all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Anne Stevenson, How Poems Arrive. You say them as your undertongue declares, then let them knock about your upper mind until the shape of what they mean appears. Like love, they're strongest when admitted blind, judging by feel, feeling with sharpened sense, while yet their need to be is undefined. Inaccurate emotion as intense as action sponsored by adrenaline feeds on itself, and in its own defense fancies its role humanitarian. But poems, butch or feminine, are vain, and draw their satisfactions from within, sporting with vowels or showing off a chain of silver L's and M's to host displays of intimacy or blame or joy or pain. The ways of words are tight and selfish ways, and each one wants a slot to suit its weight. Lines needn't scan like this with every phrase, but something like a pulse must integrate the noise a poem makes with its invention. Otherwise, write prose, or simply wait till it arrives and tells you its intention. From the Penguin Book of Canadian Verse, introduced and edited by Ralph Gustafson in 1958. What is Canadian? The specifics of contemporary Canadian poetry are these. One, the sea, primal, challenging, present. Two, diving, literal diving, diving back to, an astounding engagement with water dived into. Three, green, as an amazing engagement, green blood, green air, green out of the white of winter. Four, hills, despite the prairies, granite and the antagonist, the Laurentian shield. Five, a hatred of cruelty, of cruelty to cruelty. Six, women make men. Seven, the eye, symbol and active agent. Eight, concern with fish, symbolic, not religious. 9. War is not a natural condition. 10. A laughter towards tourists. 11. Little longing for diviner regions. And 12. Only one Mountie in a satire. One snowshoe. There are the main objective correlatives and attitudes. They add up into the word North. Weekly expose. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, this week we're going to talk about net gallery. Now, we all know there's a huge issue and not enough reviews for all the books that are being published every year. 
because we have so many MFA programs and so many people need those first books to get teaching jobs, uh, especially if they get awards uh, or grants and so on and so forth. So the production of the text is part of the system. Alas, uh, obviously writing and publishing a book should be so much more than that. But there you go. Uh, reviews are part of that system, and yet somehow they are made liminal. They are excluded from that system. The Those who write reviews are often relegated to the margins or dismissed, uh, critiqued for their perspectives and their positions, even when they have multiple degrees, have published many books themselves, have been reading since they were children in the particular genre, and love the genre and want to see it published with high standards. So there's a big issue with not enough reviews happening. And a lot of people who started publishing 20, 30, 40, and so on years ago were spoiled in the best way with a lot of different reviews in multiple publications from places like the Globe and Mail or the national newspapers to all your literary magazines, a lot of which seem to have lost funding and or interest in publishing reviews. Uh, so I find it, as I've mentioned many times before in this podcast, very curiously and sadly uh, compelling uh, and confusing as to why this occurs. So I'm going to offer another potential solution at the end. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to talk about one of the issues in a um, website that actually does publish reviews, and it's called NetGalley. Now, you can also get reviews of your books, uh, usually when they're already published on Goodreads or Amazon. But NetGalley is different. I'm not sure if this is the case with Goodreads, but definitely NetGalley, you can get ARCs or advanced review copies sent to you, and those reviewers who sign up to review on NetGalley there's a system there whereby they get points towards getting books. And so the more reviews they do, the better the books they get or the more choice of the books that they get to review. So there's a high incentive to basically just review a whole ton of stuff, maybe things you're not familiar with, you don't appreciate, not a genre you're particularly uh, fascinated by, and most of these reviews are just reviews on the beginnings of the books. Uh, usually it seems that the reviewers don't read beyond the first third, maybe, of the book. Maybe only the first couple of pages. Um, so you don't really get a complete uh, review. And a lot of times the reviews could be very um, harsh or rude uh, because they're essentially anonymous. You can't really check out who the reviewer is, what their credentials are. You can't obviously respond to them. Uh, so are they useful or are they not? Because reviews to me should be written by somebody who's intelligent, somebody who has a deep appreciation for the genre, uh, somebody who has a lot of experience reading and comprehending, somebody who wants to take their time and their energy and actually do some kind of in-depth reading, draw out quotes from the book, 
and so forth. And somebody wants to give a balanced review. That does not mean, gosh, uh, even if you absolutely adore the book, you're probably going to find something that you wish had been different. Now, whether that's useful to point out is up to you. Uh, but if you are somebody who's going to just entirely pan a book, that's probably not the book for you and you should just ignore it because that doesn't help anybody. And reviews are for the author, of course, to promote their work, but deeper than that, they're about critical thinking, they're about perceiving art at depth, they're about contributing to the vocabulary and the perceptiveness of the audience. So this uh, critic here of NetGalley says... <laughs> 30 things I've learned from five years of being published. Number 25 is that Goodreads and NetGalley are the devil's work. <laughs> so then they go on to say, uh, aren't authors meant to be miserable all the time? Don't panic. I have the solution, people. Take a trip over to Goodreads or NetGalley, the place where author's happiness goes to die, and read the three-star and below reviews of your books. There you go. Within a few minutes, you'll be feeling utterly rubbish about yourself and your writing again. Equilibrium restored. Obviously, I'm being snarky, but I'd love to meet an author who took a trip to Goodreads and came away feeling better about themselves. Then she says, as a fellow author, I'd love to advise you never to look at NetGalley or Goodreads, but I think it's really tough not to. Uh, she's realized that the communities on NetGalley and Goodreads are not the same as normal readers. You'll often find your Amazon reviews are much kinder than the ones on NetGalley and Goodreads. Thank God. I suspect a lot of Goodreads and NetGalley reviewers are also frustrated writers. So try to take your reviews with a pinch of salt. So uh, NetGalley, this is a more general uh, description of what it does. It was launched in 2008 as a joint project between Firebrand Technologies and Rosetta Solutions. Wow, those sound like really creative entities. Uh, so they swarm the publishers. They get all these arcs, so they're not even reading from an actual published copy. It says they're a company that aims to help book advocates, authors, publishers, and industry professionals discover, promote, and recommend books to their audiences. But reviewers earn points based on volumes and then get access to the traditional books to review. So many will pick up books outside of their genres and then not even finish them, but pen them. So it's really often extremely disappointing. Uh, I had a couple of reviews pop up from the arc of my book that's coming out in about six weeks called Moving to Delilah. And uh, let's see, they have the star system, of course, the five stars. Uh, the Every single review contains an error. So I think that's interesting. So the first one gave me three stars. And they said, I haven't read a poetry collection with a focus on moving countries and making a new home there. So it was a cool theme for a book. Well, I'm moving provinces. I'm not moving countries. Okay. Uh, it said it stayed on theme most of the way through. Well, okay. It's a poetry collection. Does it have to stay on theme? Uh, and, and I led them on a journey through my big move. Sounds like I'm writing a children's book. All right, the second one says, I romanticize my relationship with my home. Uh, don't think that's true. Uh, my first name is misspelled. And um, apparently I enabled the author of this review to um, foster a certain fondness for the house. Now, this one gave me four stars. 
And I appreciate that they said I employed an impressive variety of poetic formats and genres. So I think they meant forms and genres. Okay, this is this is the worst one, only two stars. They were so looking forward to this book, but they seem to think that this book is a collection of nonfiction uh, stories, uh, you know, chronologically having a trajectory of telling them about my relationship with my house. And unfortunately, they couldn't connect with my feelings because it should have been written in a different way the poetry and haiku didn't tell a story, but it just threw out bits and pieces. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, poems uh, tell stories in different ways than, than prose. So if you're not ready for that, then I, I suppose you are going to be confused and perhaps uh, feel dissatisfied in some way. Uh, th that reviewer doesn't even have a picture of themselves, so they're even more anonymous. And then this last one gave me another four stars. So I did get, you know, two out of the four with four stars. So, uh, but they misspelled my last name. All right. At least this one uh, talked more about specifics. Uh, what kind of house I live in. Um, took out quotes. Uh, used quotes from lyrics and also from the prose pieces that are the haibuns that end in uh, haikus and uh, they talk about it as a mix of prose poetry and straight verse not sure what straight verse is but there you go uh, no big dramas here it's focused on rootedness rather than the more ephemeral emotions okay and then it says a satisfying read so that's appreciated but again like i said we don't know who these reviewers are we don't know what their credentials are and Sometimes it seems like we don't really care anymore, and it's very perplexing to me. It's the same thing with contests. Do we not care who the judges are? I mean, personally, I don't want to submit to a contest that's judged by students at this point in my life or, or judged by someone, as I saw last year, who claimed that they were just a, uh, a drawer poet. Uh, so they hadn't published anything yet. They were judging a contest. I mean, no, thank you. So my solution is let's have a net gallery of Goodreads of MFA students. Where's that network? Uh, let them have their voice. Let them write reviews of books that are grounded in the particular genres they're studying, that they're interested in. And, you know, they're all wanting the book. For themselves so let's start with some apprentice work and let's gain respect for criticism review writing and start to build up your foundation from there respond to other books read as much as you can and then create reviews that really matter All right, outlaws. So you heard one weird thing, Ralph Gustafson's list of what makes a Canadian poem from 1958. I found that book in the free library in our local cafe called The Carrot, which is run by volunteers and has a lot of art and delicious lattes. And yeah, I happened to snag that on the weekend when I was playing host to my niece, Ava, who was absolutely wonderful and it was so much fun to scoot about the city being a tourist and also she tragically told me more about the sad tale of chat gpt and 
why it's so useful to her as a college university student, how it helps her to write her essays, edit her essays, and how uh, my mind, which costs money, is not going to be needed anymore. Not in that way, alas and alack, for who knows however long. But yeah, I uh, picked that up then when I was tootling about with her and having a wonderful time because she is a very intelligent human and we had good conversations and she loves books. She loves books. So all is not lost. And we went to, uh, where did we get this? Oh, I think we went to, was it Mandolin Books and Company? Or was it, uh, it was somewhere around the Highlands. At any rate, uh, we got socks that uh, said, fuck off, I'm reading. And then pins that said, book junkie. And any book worth banning is a book worth reading. So yes, and the second thing you heard was, of course, my rant against, uh, well, NetGalley book, uh, no, Goodreads. Uh, any any uh, book reviewing website that utilizes reviewers that are not qualified, seemingly for the most part, or underqualified, or aren't that interested in proofing their reviews, or writing in-depth reviews, or even reading to the end of the book. So yes, uh, but apart from that, well, this week it's going to be a humble homage uh, on the poet Elizabeth Brewster. I'm going to record that tomorrow. I'm actually walking around my living room, and it's already dark when I'm doing this intro tonight. I thought I would record it at a different time, just to see how I felt uh, after I drank a little bit of wine instead of chugged down a pot of coffee. And I'm watching the cats uh, groom themselves and or sleep. And my partner's downstairs and he's running through his Tina Turner set for when he goes on his mini tour at the end of the month with a tribute band. And I thought I would uh, let you know of a lovely thing that uh, somebody I just met, a poet from Montreal, wrote to me about... He wrote to me about mirror reviews which I've been doing for approximately 13 or so years for free as a blog on WordPress. His name is Derek Webster. And he said to me, I just wanted to drop you a note of praise from your reviews. I've been reading your reviews and posts all weekend, marveling at the extent of your coverage and dedication and the consistency of your responses to books and poems over the years. Great job. You have really followed through in your original manifesto of sorts. I find myself agreeing with many things you say, whether about books I've read or the contemporary poetry scene, if there even is one, and intrigued by your thoughts on books that are new to me. Thank you for putting your time and effort into this. And then he says a little later, I agree with you about the whole lead with awards bio notes. It's weird to have to push the awards. I think we've ended up here as a result of a bottleneck of need. People basically can't get invited to festivals, etc., without winning one of a handful of awards. Absolutely true. So everyone ends up trying to beg, borrow, and steal credibility. Yes, sometimes very sorrowfully. Love of poetry becomes the poetry game. And then he concludes by saying, it would be better to be like Alice Major and mention one's community role instead. Yes, how fabulous that would be if we all felt the pressure to mention our community involvement in our bios. I wonder how quickly that would increase people's interest in writing reviews or hosting series or having podcasts or, or mentoring poets or 
doing all kinds of other things that we can do in order to nurture this rich and beautiful life that we've chosen or that's chosen us. And so with that, I'm going to bid you adieu until tomorrow when you will be able to listen to me talk about the wondrous poet who died in 2012, Elizabeth Brewster. Elizabeth Winifred Brewster was born 26 August 1922 in Chipman, New Brunswick, and died 26 December 2012. She grew up in a small New Brunswick lumber town, won scholarships, allowed her to attend and earn a BA at the University of New Brunswick, an MA, uh, other degrees, and then a PhD at Indiana University. Then she joined the University of Saskatchewan's Department of English in 1972. She was a librarian and cataloger. She published more than 20 books, most of them poetry collections. Uh, Her poetry focuses on rural eastern Canada, and she contemplates western Canada, the Old Testament, and the universe in her poetry and prose. 
This is from the Canadian Encyclopedia, by the way. This is her most bare-bones bio. Uh, she was one of a handful of modernist female poets published in Canadian magazines in the 40s. Her first book of poetry was East Coast, 1951. 1985, you can find her two-volume selected poems from 44 to 84. And then I particularly remember when her collection Footnotes to the Book of Job came out and was shortlisted for the GG in 1995. Then she had the collected poems again in two volumes in 03 and 04. She also has some prose works and autobiographical works. She was a founding member of The Fiddlehead, an important Canadian literary magazine at one point. And she is a recipient of the Lifetime Award for Excellence in the Arts from the Saskatchewan Arts Board and a member of the Order of Canada. So that's a very brief bio. There's a much more interesting commemoration of Elizabeth Brewster that came out in the Globe and Mail on February 4th, 2013, the year after she died. Well, actually a couple of months after she died. It was written by Noreen Shanahan and it's titled... Elizabeth Brewster's journey of self-awareness led to prolific poetry career. And there's that wonderful picture of her with her white hair heroning up on her forehead, spackled with sunspots and that wry little sideways smile. Uh, so she says, in her poetry, Elizabeth Brewster questioned the negative role intrusion plays in a poet's life. Her own life, she said, was dull most of the time. She preferred to be left alone to write, and this she did for nearly 80 years. Well, that's a lesson to us all, isn't it? We don't always have to have a thrilling existence. We just have to focus on our creation. Pay attention to what we're making and uh, live a more inner than outer life. So she says in her poem, The Silent Scream, she describes playing alone at the edge of a woodpile when she was seven and she dangerously slipped beneath the quicksand of sawdust. She opened her mouth to scream, but her voice had gone. And then she comments, I wonder if that is why all the reviewers say, I am such a quiet poet. Canadian writer John Robert Colombo said she had a genius for understatement and had mastered the casual aside. Like a wine which improves with age, its taste mellows in memory. Dr. Brewster was one of the few Canadian women poets publishing during the 40s and 50s. Along with her friends, the poets P.K. Page and Dorothy Live say she helped pave the way for young women poets. And as I said, she founded the Fiddlehead. She taught at the University of Saskatchewan until she retired in 1990. She won the Sask Book Award for Poetry, twice listed for the GG, had an honorary doctorate. And yeah, she died at the age of 90. So then the essay goes back to her beginnings. Betty Brewster was delivered into her grandmother's arms on a hot August afternoon in 22 in the small logging town of Chipman, New Brunswick. Her mother had shooed her four other children outside to watch for the doctor, who arrived too late. Her father missed the birth too. He was at his own mother's deathbed in St. John, but made it back in time to christen the infant with the dead woman's name. So then Elizabeth Brewster later wrote, Maybe some awareness of the shadow of death came into my mind even in infancy. Her parents, Frederick and Ethel, were in their 40s and unemployed when she was born. In one poem, the poet describes her mother lugging small children and heavy suitcases from one relative's home to another, always seeking refuge. They even lived at the pest house, so-called because it had been a site of quarantine during a cholera epidemic. Things improved for the family during the war when her parents found jobs at the army canteen dishing up stew and boiling donuts. 
Because Elizabeth was physically weak and considered slow at her letters and numbers, she was kept out of school for several years. One of the best things that you can do if you have an artistic child, uh, keep them out of school, homeschool them, or, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they get sick and they're kept home as I was when I had pneumonia at seven. And truly, you become more deeply educated that way. So Elizabeth hunkered down with the kitchen wood stove and whipped through Shakespeare, Scott, and Dickens. By the age of eight, she had read Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Wow. And when she was stuck for reading material, there was always the Eaton's catalog, or she would wander through the graveyard to read epitaphs. Yes, that is truly how desperate we could get as readers sometimes. Her first poem was published when she was 12. Her father quietly submitted it to the local newspaper and surprised her a few days later with an armful of copies. Although she was mortified, clearly the geyser had burst. Dr. Brewster met Ms. Page, P.K. Page, in 1940 when she judged a competition she had entered and P.K. Page welcomed her further into the writing community. And then The Fiddlehead also became one of her earliest publishers. She worked on her master's degree in literature she taught starting in 1947 in a small private school in Coburg, but unfortunately, within a few weeks, she broke her back falling off a horse and was forced to convalesce back home in Fredericton with her folks for the next several months. Probably another uh, fortunate moment uh, through misfortune. After a few more years, she had all these degrees, but she wasn't able to find an academic teaching position. Oh, dear. So she ended up going into business college for training as a secretary, but... Clerical jobs are tedious. So she devised a career path more compatible with her passion for the written word and became a librarian. She got her Bachelor of Library Science degree in 1952. Wow, how many degrees did this woman have? And while there at U of T, she won the prestigious E.J. Pratt Award for Poetry for selections from her second collection, Lillouette. Then she met Bernie, Layton, and Webb. She underwent Jungian psychoanalysis. And then it says the next several years were tumultuous for Dr. Brewster. She was moving around from job to job in libraries. Then she got her doctorate. And then it says Dr. Brewster struggled a great deal during the first half of her life. Her personal anguish was so severe that she once tried to drown herself. But obviously she survived. And in 1968, she met a young writer named Margaret Atwood, who gave her a transformative tarot card reading. They were both living in Edmonton at the time. Uh, Dr. Brewster was a librarian and Ms. Abbott a creative writing instructor at the U of A, University of Alberta. The reading indicated that joy would replace sorrow in the second half of her life. So uh, Atwood says that she knew Elizabeth very well when they were both living in Edmonton. She kept up with her after that. She calls her an honest poet, very open, very clear. And then Elizabeth Brewster took over Margaret Atwood's creative writing class for the following academic year. I would also influence the choice and arrangement of poems in Brewster's next book, Sunrise North. And then 1972, she had a grant uh, from the Canada Council. Then she started teaching at uh, University of Saskatchewan. She finally settled down to a life rich in academia as well as an auspicious writing career. Time during sabbaticals and frequent visits to Victoria, where Miss Livesay kept her company, resulted in an effusion of poems. So she never married, never had kids. She leaves her nieces, Cora Allen and Ruby Bagley, and her nephew, Dwight Brewster. And uh, I asked on Facebook for some memories of Elizabeth Brewster. And unfortunately, I only received one. 
but it was from Barb Pellman, who lives in Victoria. And she says that Elizabeth Bruce used to come to Victoria every winter, and she attended the congregation Emmanuel when she was there. She had converted at some point in her adult life, I believe. I once went for tea at her suite in Helm's Inn. We exchanged books and talked about poetry. A gentle soul. And then I said to her, the only memory I have of Elizabeth Brewster is when I was a member of the League of Canadian Poets, which I'm no longer a member of because it's too expensive for one major reason, uh, alas. But I was at a conference and I can't remember, was it in Winnipeg? Uh, I was across the street and I didn't see Elizabeth Brewster at the conference, or I, I don't think I did, but my memory of her is a very old lady. I mean, she seemed older than she was at that point, I think, but she was in her 80s. And she was trying to open the very heavy door that entered into the conference hall. And as Barb Pelvin and I both remember her, yes, she was small and stooped and white-haired, and yet so luminous with her singing. So I'm going to finish by reading a poem. Uh, what we started with was a Tim McGee, who is a professor in um, Minnesota, I think. Uh, actually, a small town there, maybe Wisconsin. At any rate, he's an American teacher, and he has a whole YouTube channel that's dedicated to reading poems and discussing them with his students. And this was the only Canadian uh, poet I could actually find, so that's quite marvelous. And he reads her poem, uh, Where We Come From. Uh, not referring to any notes here. And he, uh, yeah, you just get the, the beginning of his uh, introduction of her biography. And at the end, he starts discussing the poem at, at uh, quite detailed length. So I can't uh, find a reading that Elizabeth Brewster herself did online. So I included him talking about and reading one of her poems. And now I'm going to read her poem, Blue Flag, which is included in the Porcupine Quill, again, Porcupine's Quill, um, essential Elizabeth Brewster. So pick that up if you're fascinated by her enduring work. Blue Flag. So that I would not pick the blue flag in the midst of the pond and get my clothes wet, my mother told me that it was poison. I watched this beautiful, frightening flower growing up from the water, from its green reeds, washed blue, sun-veined, and wanted it more than all the flowers I was allowed to pick. Wild roses, pink and smooth as soap, or the milk-thin daisies with butter-blob centers. I noticed that the midges that covered the surface of the water were not poisoned by the blue flag, but I thought they must have a different kind of life from mine. Even now, if I pick one, fear comes over me, a trembling. I half expect to be struck dead by the flower's magic, a potency seeping from its dangerous blue skin, its veined center. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.